Hey there, and welcome to Filmatic. When my girlfriend asked me to go see Joker, I said, Joker? I hardly know her. Yeah, the, uh, the joke there was that I had a girlfriend. Okay, on this show we will actually be discussing Joker this time, a film created by Todd Phillips and distributed by Warner Brothers Studios. But first, some movie news. If you'd like to skip this part and hit the Joker review right away, please check the time code in the description. Todd Phillips' Joker is laughing all the way to the bank, earning an outstanding $55 million in its sophomore weekend for a 10-day domestic total of $192.7 million and a massive global haul of nearing $600 million. Joker easily remained at number one, although Halloween family pick The Addams Family comes in a strong number two with $30 million, ahead of expectations and more than enough to bury Ang Lee's big-budget Gemini Man starring Will Smith, which followed at number 3, with an estimated $20.5 million. Joker fell only 43% in North America. For now, let's focus on Gemini Man. It opened with just $20.5 million in domestic box office this weekend. It hasn't performed much better overseas, where it has earned $59 million worldwide after opening in around 85% of its eventual foreign markets. Still not good, one might think. Perhaps it can pick up some steam in China. But projections aren't looking very good, and it still will not save it from being one of the biggest box office flops ever. What are some of the reasons this happened? Well, for one, the critical reception. For being an original film, which is actually quite hard to find these days, it really ended up being a general run-of-the-mill, poorly written action film. Thus, its only real offer was some pretty neat technology, although anyone who's seen a few of the newer Marvel movies know that they pretty much utilize this type of effect regularly now, but still a technical feat no less. Actually, a cool bit about the tech is that they film it once with a stand-in, then again with Will Smith in motion capture. But the kicker of the new tech is that when they put in the younger Will Smith, he's actually 100% CGI, which is actually pretty insane. But the only other offer was Will Smith versus Will Smith. Will Smith needs a franchise to open a movie. Another problem is that Will Smith is now a, quote, regular movie star. Like almost any other movie star today, save for your DiCaprio's and such, he is a high-level added value element for an already viable IP franchise or brand pitch. You can cast him as Deadshot in Suicide Squad or as the genie in Aladdin, and he's worth his weight in gold. Or a don't-need-to-leave-the-couch-to-watch-it movie like Bright. But the star-plus concept packages that once defined Hollywood are now unless the budget is low enough, bad business. Gemini Man joins Focus, which earned $150 million global on a $50 million budget, Collateral Beauty, After Earth, and Concussion as wholly original star vehicles that couldn't pull their weight in a branded-slash-IP theatrical world. Maybe if the film had worked better as a movie, Joker had been less of an all-purpose event, the movie star plus high-concept formula was still viable, Gemini Man might have survived. The tragedy is that, like Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway's Serenity, the bells and whistles of Gemini Man may have both sabotaged the movie and jeopardize the industry. There are fewer and fewer moviegoers who will show up for a star-driven, original, adult-skewing studio programmer. When the few of those get thrown off by ridiculous plots like Serenity or divisive visuals like Gemini Man, those moviegoers are likely to just stay home next time. New trailers out include Jungle Cruise, starring of course Hollywood's favorite, extremely expensive, yet somehow still profitable hunk, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, co-starring Emily Blunt. Disney's next attempt to bring a theme park ride movie IP to life by putting The Rock on a CG-crazed boat trip, with many integral nods to the Pirates franchise. It's really a shame what Disney did to that mostly magnificent series. A video will definitely be done on the first three Pirates films in the future, but I'd like to note that The Curse of the Black Pearl is one of the greatest action-adventure movies ever made, and Gore Verbinski's masterpiece deserves to be studied as a film. It's truly heartbreaking how hard Disney screwed the last Pirates movie and his characters into the ground. Oh yeah, Jungle Cruise. <laughs> the trailer looks fairly by the books and comes out in July 2020, so cool I guess. 
I highly doubt it'll do much better than, say, Mary Poppins domestically, if that, but it's hard to say right now. Although July 2020's current release schedule does show promise now that I look at it, with my boy Chris Nolan's newest film coming out the same month. Titled Tenant, it seems to be as mind-bending as Nolan gets. The trailer played before my Joker showing, and it made little to no sense in typical Nolan trailer fashion, but it seems to involve time and stars John David Washington, so plenty of reason to be excited, I'd say. Finally, I'd like to quickly remind that El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie, came out on Netflix, and it's absolutely great. I'd like to do a mini or even a full episode on this movie and Breaking Bad. Vince Gilligan clearly advertised and sets this movie up for exactly what it is, which is a bow on top of the masterpiece of Breaking Bad, and it serves as a spectacular further development of the character of Jesse Pinkman after the torture he endured, as well as a few other characters in the universe. It took me back into that universe, and now that I'm stuck back in, I am absolutely famished for more Breaking Bad media, but I guess that lies in Vince's hands, though he's never steered us wrong yet. God bless the genius. And now, let us discuss Joker, starring Joaquin Phoenix and directed by Todd Phillips of Hangover fame. This is clearly a huge tone shift for Phillips, and he handles it quite well. Now, I know there's a lot of controversy and discussion surrounding this movie leading up to its arrival, but all in due time. Okay, firstly, let's talk about specifics. The film was of course distributed by WB Studios in DC, and the first unconnected film to their attempted slash maybe dead DCEU, thus giving them much more creative freedom, including that shiny R rating that allows this film to operate so well. It also operated on a nice and reserved 55 million budget, making its current, at the time of this recording, half a billion worldwide revenue and 200 million domestic, a huge, huge profit for Warner Brothers, and the highest grossing R-rated movie of all time, as it seems to be about to cross Deadpool's record at the time of this recording. These aspects are what have been proven time and time again by quality films to studios, that quality and proper movie making will always trump monstrous CGI filth, even in China sometimes. The extremely talented Joaquin Phoenix plays the titular character, and does so almost entrancingly, and carries the movie, as should any actor in a character study of a film, a la Taxi Driver and King of Comedy which are heavy aspirations for this movie, but more on Joaquin's performance and these films influence later. Speaking of the taxi driver himself, Robert De Niro has a role in the film as well, as a Carson-esque 80s talk show host, who also has deep influences on the birth of the Joker throughout the movie. Zazie Beetz of Deadpool 2 fame also has a part in the movie, as another character who lives in Arthur Fleck's building, whom Arthur gets interested in and plays another role in his psyche, but more on that in spoilers. The setting in which this movie takes place may as well be considered a character in and of itself. This I am of course talking about Gotham City, probably the best on-screen depiction of the city to date. It's ugly, grimy, hot, overpopulated, and close to uninhabitable, making the breeding ground for all sorts of crimes and violence, and also the birthplace of a systematic caste movement that is spurred by Arthur Fleck. The choice of making this set in the 80s is also genius. All practical settings and locations, along with a perfectly characterized lower class, capitalize on this vibe and bring a new sense of grit and realism to the genre. Arthur is a victim to this environment and to the world, and is constantly shown so. Moment after moment, he is bruised, mocked, and abused. And the worst of it is that he is not even a misunderstood man or loner. He is unable to engage with the world to any degree. Even Gotham has a societal structure to some degree, and day-to-day -day existence is simply impossible without engaging in some sort of system. Arthur also has a neurological disorder that causes uncontrollable laughter, often and many times at the worst possible moments. I just want to take a second to say that even on solely this, Joaquin Phoenix has proven himself to be one of the greatest actors to grace a movie screen in the past few years. The psychotic, and I don't just mean blandly crazy, but this deranged laughter of a sick man that he simply cannot control, combined with a sadness and pain absolutely 
dripping from his eyes as he knows he cannot stop it. This portrayal of mental illness is unprecedented, and the way this evolves throughout the movie as Arthur devolves into a different man with different intentions is truly beautiful, and proves that this movie probably wouldn't have survived without Joaquin Phoenix. Phoenix inhabits Arthur. Having lost weight for the role, he looks thin, frail, hungry. Shadows carve out his exposed bones. His physicality is precise. The way he moves, shuffles, runs, sits, smokes, shrinks. His usual intensity is on full display, and it's captivating, even overwhelming in moments. Comparing him to Heath Ledger and Jack Nicholson feels like a nonsense move. This is a Joker we've never seen. In many respects, it isn't even the Joker. It's Arthur. Cinematographer Lawrence Scher brings Gotham to life and puts some of the best scenes in context. Every shot establishing the monstrosity of Gotham is well-placed and outlines moments of comedy, levity, despair, and most strongly the violence in some scenes. The soundtrack is also spectacular. Now before we delve further, it is necessary to address the quick build of controversy and word of mouth in the months leading up to this movie, which almost certainly helped its box office haul and in many ways proved the media wrong, both negatively and positively. So bear with me. This buzz began as Warner Brothers positioned Joker as an awards player, popping up at many festivals the few months before its international premiere, chief of which was in Venice and Toronto, where it won Venice's highest festival honor, the Golden Lion Award, which had previously gone to Alfonso Cuaron's masterpiece Roma last year. This win poised the interest of many outlets as well as the general public, whose interest had peaked. The controversy began rising. To sum it up, the question at hand was, just how much of a handbook will Joker be for the disaffected, looking to see a hero's journey for someone who resorts to senseless violence in this extreme era of mass shooting? In presenting Arthur as a nice guy at the mercy of a society who does not care about him, does it directly does it directly cater to the embittered and celibate crowd? Just as the Joker, over the course of his journey in the film, inspires a wave of violence, could the movie do the same? Telegraph critic Robbie Collin tweeted, Here's my opinion of Joker. I think it's a very good film and I'm worried someone's going to get killed. To counter, a piece in the outline readily dismisses the assumption that violent media breeds violent behavior. In the weeks leading up to the release of the movie, fears and anxiety surrounding it and its potential to incite violence have only grown. The US military sent an email to service members warning of a potential risk based on social media chatter. Posts on social media have made reference to incel extremists replicating the 2012 theater shooting in Aurora, Colorado. At screenings of the Joker movie at nationwide theaters, the email read, This presents a potential risk to DOD personnel and family members, though there are no specific credible threats to the opening of the Joker on 4 October. Meanwhile, according to Variety, family members of the victims of the Aurora shooting addressed a letter to Warner Brothers CEO asking the company to quote, use its massive platform and influence to join us in our fight to build safer communities with fewer guns. The group wrote, when we learned that Warner Brothers was releasing a movie called Joker that presents the character as a protagonist with a sympathetic origin story, it gave us pause. It's worth noting that Aurora gunman James Holmes never called himself the Joker. Warner Brothers responded to the Aurora letter in a statement assuring its anti-gun violence practices and adding, make no mistake, neither the fictional character Joker nor the film is any endorsement of real-world violence of any kind. It is not the intention of the film, the filmmakers, or the studio to hold this character up as a hero. In the end, nothing happened. No acts of violence, however my whole point in explaining the situation is firstly to bring light to the circumstances of the birth of this movie, and more importantly, how exactly these ideas, in my opinion, are translated in different fashions in the film. Alright. At this point, I just want to dig into the analysis of this movie, as well as put this controversy to some context. So I'm going to say spoilers ahead if you have not seen this movie, and it is an absolutely must-see this year. If not purely for Phoenix's masterful and encapsulating performance, but for the characterization of a city from hell, and the beggings of a message of systematic class oppression. And now, spoilers. Let's talk about some little pieces first that I thoroughly enjoy, and add character and depth to the film, and Joaquin's performance. 
One thing that gets overlooked is Phoenix gives and creates two iconic laughs during this performance. His laugh he's self-inflicted with that comes up when he's distressed, which is amazing, especially how he ends up almost choking on it. And his other psychotic laugh that he forces when he thinks he's meant to be laughing at social cues, even though he doesn't actually know why he's laughing. Like at the comedy club and when his co-workers are making fun of the little person. Speaking of the comedy club, what a standout scene from this movie. You feel Arthur's pain in the pin drop silent club as he struggles with his laugh and then continues to give his performance, talking about how he was meant to bring joy into the world. Arthur's scenes at his job are also phenomenal. The scene where he drops the gun at the children's hospital is absolutely hilarious. And I love the way it is shot with a stable spot for the whole scene and then the pan down to the piece and back up to Arthur freaking the hell out and yelping, then grabbing it. It is crazy how funny this bit was, yet also heartbreaking as Joaquin is able to portray Arthur's realization of what happened and how screwed he may be. When he's fired, the shot of him smiling while his boss is screaming him out about the sign was amazing yet terrifying. I like that the boss said he was lying about the sign being mugged from him with who would steal a sign but then instantly accuses him of stealing the worthless sign, really shows the double standard and disregard for Arthur. Let's talk about the progression of this movie for a second, and as we go, I can hit multiple thoughts on the scenes that follow. The first major turning point for Arthur is, of course, when he kills the three Wall Street-type rich dudes on the subway. It signifies the beginning of Arthur deciding to stand up for himself through violence against the world which hates him. The shot comes so suddenly and brutally delivered by Arthur on the flashing subway, it is visually outstanding and surprising to the audience in the right way. The way he chases after the other two so calmly and collected as well as showing just how brutal he can be, even from the get-go. In doing these killings, Arthur inadvertently starts a political movement in the already pressurized Gotham City, making clowns a symbol for the trodden-on lower class, and their enemy being the rich and privileged who do not care for them. Let's take a moment to talk about that amazing scene on the Murray Franklin show. Arthur at this point has fully embraced his new persona of Joker, after inciting a riot on the train on the way to the show, and now he's going to finally tell the whole city exactly who he is and what he is capable of, and the flaws of the system the people live. In. The uncomfortableness and tension built from the start is absolutely impeccable. We go from a quick glimpse of a charming Arthur to a buildup as the man sitting in the chair next to Murray Franklin begins to reveal his true form. Which reminds me, the role of Franklin in Arthur's mind is a smart way to assign yet another tragic notion to his life. In the beginning of the film, he literally dreams of this moment and has visions of Murray as a father figure type to him. Even after the subway killings, we see he reveres the man, especially in connection with his mother's love for watching the show as well. Now he becomes yet another target of Arthur's hatred of the world, and let me say, this whole scene is done so well, especially the major turning point of Arthur's nonchalant, I killed those men on the subway, and the turn of mockery to disgust and horror pointed towards Arthur by the audience, and even more importantly, Murray Franklin. Then of course the shot to the head of Murray on live TV, and the chaos speeds up by light years from this point. Arthur at this moment is now even more of a figure and face to the movement. Fires burn, multiple fights ensue, and the masses start wearing clown masks all around the city. Joker rides through it all in a cop car, in custody. He admires the chaos, seeing it all as a beautiful masterpiece. It doesn't take long for his new followers to rescue him, however. Afterward, he once more does his balletic-like performance on the hood of the car, the crowd cheering and worshipping him. They've been spurned on by his actions, letting violence and chaos take hold, in order to fight their own feelings of similar disenfranchisement and marginalization. This city-wide riot, of course, ends with much destruction and death, and of course that of Thomas and Martha Wayne. I know this may have brought many audible groans from those who thought there would be little to no comic book ties to the film, and while I see where they come from, I think this inclusion brings and protects the film from exactly what the media has put it under a negative light for. It signifies that the Joker, or Arthur Fleck, is not the protagonist of this film, i.e. he is not meant to be looked up to or rooted for to a certain degree. There is one singular foundation of hope. Poetically, the birth of the Joker results in the birth of the Batman. The contrast is stark. On one hand, you have Arthur Fleck, 
who submits and gives into the darkness of his childhood trauma and negative environment, perpetuating the darkness to become one of the most monstrous villains of all time. On the other hand, Bruce Wayne. While he too suffers significant childhood trauma and lives in some negative environment, Bruce chooses to resist that darkness. Instead, he uses it as a tool to better his society, becoming Gotham's Dark Knight. In essence, Joker is a film that answers the very joke Joker tells before he shoots Murray Franklin. What do you get when you cross a mentally ill loner with a society that abandons him and treats him like trash? Well, Murray, you get what you effing paid for. I don't know if I can curse on this podcast yet. Please don't pull my funding Spotify. Arthur Fleck initially has moments where he might pity him, but this is only in the beginning when he's down on his luck, getting beat up, and still trying to be happy despite his hardships. However, there's never full-on sympathy as we see more of the choices he makes that lead to ever darker and destructive paths. As a result, the audience are not called to root for Arthur slash Joker. We're called to watch, observe, and be warned. Furthermore, a big part of his downward spiral into darkness is observed in step with the likewise breakdown of his mental stability. Relationships that might have pulled him out from this descent, like with his mother, aren't what they appear to be due to new revelations. Also, said relationships lack less substance than we initially perceived them to have had, as we're seeing Arthur's world through the lens of his own mental stability, or lack thereof, and how he views them. Bold, devastating, and utterly beautiful. Todd Phillips and Joaquin Phoenix have not just reimagined one of the most iconic villains in cinema history, but reimagined the comic book movie in itself. These points pretty much sum up what I thought of the movie and how I perceive certain messages. However, I can see some other takes being viable, as with any character study of a movie like this. I could talk more and more about little things and pieces of the film and filmmaking I thoroughly enjoyed, but as I learned how to conduct the show, I must find a balance so that there is a stream of consciousness and order rather than disheveled thoughts. I truly hope you enjoyed the show and I appreciate you listening to it. A poll will be up soon on some shows that could come next and some mini episodes on the way, as well as El Camino. Filmatic could always use word mouth so if you enjoy the show share it put it on your instagram or snap stories and follow social media my instagram is at nabil sharif with two e's snapchat nabil sharif and the newly built filmatic instagram is at filmatic podcast my name is nabil sharif and you've been listening to filmatic <laughs>